0: Thank you, David, and happy birthday. Um, I'm going to do something a little different this morning if uh, if this works. We're uh, going to move this down here and retrieve this stool. Since i got to play two games today, I'm going to... Take it a little bit easy as we go th- as we go through this. Um, as you know, Brad is under the weather. Uh, we the last word we got he was uh, he was indeed feeling better, and we uh, we look forward to his full return. And as Jim prayed, we miss him, and and uh, want him to recover and return in full health. And after today's message, you will miss him even more, and uh, and and want him to return even quicker. Um, we're, uh, we're going to continue this morning in our series on the Holy Spirit and look... Or Actually, it's the Trinity. We're focusing on, uh, on the Holy Spirit at this point. And we're going to look uh, at, the, at the fruit of the Spirit. Brad had begun our, um, our discussion last week and um, talked about the baptism of the Holy Spirit and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and indicated that there were about four more topics in that area that we were going to discuss and Fruit of the Spirit was the last one in Brad's list. Well, he got sick. He uh, <laughs> he asked me to do it. I said, okay, but I'll do Fruit of the Spirit. So we changed the order. So I, I, in the coming weeks, we will address the gifts of the Spirit as well as the issue of uh, quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit. But one of the ideas here was... This, we, we, we needed to understand something about the fruit of the Spirit and the, the gifts of the Spirit before we could really appreciate what quenching and grieving the Holy Spirit were all about. So the, uh, uh, so the change in order is not just uh, uh, random. There, there is some sort of uh, purpose behind it. Some years ago when um, I was teaching the book of Galatians in Sunday school, um, you know, we it it took years to get through that book, uh, but we didn't have any place to go. We, you know, they only you know we had one textbook for the entire life, uh, and so once we finished one, we're just going to start over again anyway. So we weren't in any rush, and uh, we got to Galatians chapter five verses 22 through 23, and so I sat down and read those verses to prepare my lesson for uh, for Sunday school, and I paused. I'd, I'd read those passages, those verses, many times before. I had heard sermons on them. I had been, uh, heard teachings on them. I, I had read devotional guides uh, about them. Um, I had even read some of the many Christian self-help books that, uh, that promised ten easy steps to fruit growing. Uh, you know, I talked to Jim Acock about growing grapes, and so there couldn't be too much difference, you know, between, between that. Uh, but the problem that struck me when I read it for that time was, wait a minute, this doesn't look like me. And I found that troubling because Paul is talking about believers, and I'm a believer. I said, this passage doesn't describe me. What's wrong with this picture? There's got to be something I'm missing here. Um, Previous to that point, I could just sort of skip over it, you know. This is one of those tough passages that uh, we, we really don't need to, to worry about. Let's go into something else like God is love and, and, and go on from there. Uh, but I had to deal with it that time. And so I've uh, <clears throat> I've attempted to understand why I don't look like that passage and why maybe you don't look like that passage. But why God wants us to look like that passage, and how we can look like that description of spirit-led life that Paul talks about in Galatians? Would you stand with me, please, and and let's read. Um, let's read uh, chapter five, verses. We'll start at verse sixteen and read through twenty-six. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They're in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. The acts of the sinful nature are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. And since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word to us this morning. We pray that you will uh, move in our hearts, give us new understanding and new appreciation and new courage that we might live as ones led by the Spirit, that you would be glorified and Christ would be served in our country, in our nation, in our communities, in our families, in our workplaces. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, we're going to look this morning at, um, at basically three questions um, the first one, who does this passage describe? The second one, how does this fruit develop in the life of, uh, of the believer? And, and the third question that we will explore is, what is its purpose? Why, why does the fruit of the Spirit manifest itself, or should manifest itself, in the life of a believer? Now, before Paul got to this point in Galatians... He had given them some, some uh, pretty significant instruction. He had denounced false teachers. They had been teaching legalism, uh, the, the idea that they had to, be, uh, had to be circumcised and follow Old Testament Jewish religious rituals in order to, um, to be Christians. He... Um, he sort of got on the Galatians' case about so quickly abandoning the true gospel that Paul had taught when he was there with them and adopting this false gospel. He has is, he is earlier in this letter set out the basis of his apostleship and his authority and commission to take the ministry of the gospel to the Gentiles. And he's also spent time once again explaining that man is saved by grace not of works, that it's an act of God, not an act of man, that brings us into relationship with the Lord. And he's also told the Galatians that as a result of Christ's complete and sufficient work on the cross, we have freedom. Verse 1, chapter 5 of the the book says, It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm, then, and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. This is an anti-legalism treatise. These people were working their way through life. And Paul was saying, you, you missed the boat here. You've got it wrong. So that leaves the question of, okay, what next? Now, how does, it, how does it play out in my life? If that's true, what's this freedom for which we have been saved? In answering that question... Paul then paints this picture of uh, what life is like apart from the gospel of grace. In verses 19 through 21 in chapter 5, he describes in very vivid, though note it's not exclusive terms. He, he, didn't, uh, he didn't intend to every, categorize everything of what it's like when we live in the flesh and what the flesh produces. And he follows that with a contrast of our text for today, showing what life in the Spirit is like. Now, ideally, we could spend weeks on these two passages. Uh, we don't have weeks. In fact, we don't have hours. So we will, uh, we will have to look quickly to figure out whether we resemble this passage, and if we don't, what, uh, what needs to occur in our lives in order for it to uh, resemble us. But the first question we have to ask is who does this passage describe? Who is it that Paul is writing about here? You know, I don't think he's writing about Billy Graham. I don't think he's writing about um, Martin Luther. I don't think he's writing about the Pope or any other giant of the faith. Paul is describing God. You see, these attributes that we find in the fruit of the Spirit are all attributes of God. Look at them. We'll take them in order. 1 through 9. Love. 1 John 4.16 tells us God is love. Joy. Zephaniah 3.17 tells us that God will rejoice over you. Peace. Hebrews 13 20 says that God is the God of peace. Patience. Second Peter three verse nine tells us that he is patient with us, praise the Lord. Kindness in Ephesians two seven refers to God's kindness to us. The psalmist in Psalm twenty seven thirteen addresses the goodness aspect of the fruit of the Spirit when he says, I will see the goodness of the Lord. In Lamentations 3.23, Great is thy faithfulness, O Lord. Talking about God's faithfulness, the one who does what he says. In Matthew 11.29, Jesus refers to himself as gentle and humble. Gentleness through the Spirit, descriptor of God. And in Luke, verse 1, chapter 51, as Jesus is confronted by the guards, he shows strength under control. He shows submission. He shows self-control in not attacking or confronting those who have come to, to arrest him. You see, Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, is the only person in whom all of these qualities existed in total unity, completeness and fullness. The fruit of the Spirit is a descriptor of God. Well, that sort of takes the pressure off, doesn't it? I don't have to be like that. He's writing about God, not writing about me. Let's go on to the next chapter. Well, yeah, that would be... And quite frankly, that's what many of us do. I've done that as well. But then we've got some other scriptures that we have to encounter because in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, Paul tells the church at Ephesus that says, I want you to be imitators of God. Therefore, as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice for God. So if we're going to imitate God, then we've got to deal with that list, don't we? Can't get away from it and more pointedly and more directly. In Romans chapter 8, verses 28 through 30, Paul says, And we know that in all things God works for good for those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. For those God foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among brothers. And those he predestined he also called, and those he called he also justified, and those he justified he also glorified. So the whole point of the Christian walk here, the end result, is Christ-likeness. Well, that takes us back to that list, doesn't it? Can't avoid it. And, And here's the thing. God just doesn't say, you know, I'd really like you to be like Jesus. You know, if you, if you just get out there and work on it and try a little bit harder, you could do it. You know, you can, you can do it. Paul says in Romans that he has predestined us. Predestined us to be conformed to the likeness of his Son. So that when we appear before him and he looks, it up, looks at us, he sees Jesus. That's a a pretty awesome thought. Now, how much effort do I have in that process? Well, that's something I can accomplish this afternoon, isn't it? Point is, we cannot escape the full implications of these verses by noting that only in Jesus were these attributes fully revealed. God intends for them to develop and manifest in our lives. And we must admit that elsewhere in Scripture... We are commanded to exhibit these characteristics. What about love? Are we commanded to love? Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 39 tells us to love the Lord and love our neighbor. In Philippians 4, verse 4, we're told specifically to rejoice in the Lord, to exhibit joy. 1 Peter 3.11 tells us to seek peace and pursue it. The tough one, 1 Thessalonians 5.14 says, Be patient with everyone. Not someone. Not someone who's really nice. Not someone you really like, but be patient with everyone. Colossians 3.12 says, Clothe yourself with kindness. Galatians. Later in Galatians, in, in chapter 6, verse 10, Paul says, Be faithful even to the point of death. Titus, chapter 3, verse 2, says, Show true humility, gentleness towards all men. And in 2 Peter, chapter 1, 5 through 6, says, Add to your knowledge self-control. Can't avoid it. We got to look like that. So, how does it develop? How, how, how does this happen in the life of the believer? How, how do we go from this from this life in the flesh that Paul's described in those vivid terms in chapter in verse nineteen to the spirit led life that we see in verses twenty two? Well, the agricultural metaphor that he uses, this fruit business, gives us some idea. and, And there are several points that we need to note about it. Note that the fruit of the Spirit is singular. These are not, this list, you know, it's not apples, oranges, peaches, grapes, and those sorts of things. It's one fruit. It's an integrated whole. It's sort of like the Trinity thing that we've been studying not separate pieces that we can pick and choose and say, boy, I'm going to work on this one today and that one tomorrow, and oh, Wednesday is my patience day, so that's the day I practice patience. No, it's an integrated whole. We have one spirit whose one fruit is produced in the life of the believer, and this one unit integrated whole is significant. If we follow Paul's agricultural metaphor, we see that the fruit in this situation Develops, natural, or it develops supernaturally and gradually over time. First of all, look at the supernatural aspect of it. John Stott, an English pastor, evangelist, teacher, and writer, noted that the first truth in this passage about the fruit of the Spirit is that the fruit of the Spirit is supernatural in its origin. This is evident because the qualities he lists are the fruit of the Spirit, The Holy Spirit himself is credited with their production. They are the harvest which he grows and gathers in the lives of the people he fills. It comes supernaturally. It's the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. It's not how hard you work. Now, the fruit of the Spirit, of course, is the result of the inner workings, in the life of the believer, it doesn't mean, however, that God's character is manifested in us without some sort of participation or cooperation. Stuart Briscoe, longtime pastor of Elmwood Church in Brookfield, Wisconsin, describes it like this Spirit life is the product of both spirit activity and human response. It comes from obedience to God's command to love, be patient, kind, and self control but it also takes dependence on God's power through the Spirit to make it possible. So there's this divine human interaction that's taking place as the Spirit develops in the life of the believer. If um, if we were left to our own devices, our own fallen sinful condition, and we act naturally, the way we're... Sort of prone to act, those natural actions would manifest itself in the type of behaviors that Paul described in verses 19 through 21. The fruit of the Spirit, on the other hand, is the manifestation not of our natural selves, but of our supernatural self, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. It's then not the product of our effort, it's not dependent upon our works, and not something for which we can claim credit. It's the fruit of the Spirit, not the fruit of my labors, and it's not even a balancing test, folks. Because if we were trying to balance the power of God in our life and our effort to to uh, you know work on these things, what would we do? We'd have it out of balance, wouldn't we? Because we would be deciding what was be what was needed today. Oh, today I need more of my effort, because obviously God's not doing it. And tomorrow we'd say, well, I'm just going to lay back and let God do it. So we would always have it out of balance. We'd be perpetually wrong. Now, we'll see as we get, as we get to the purpose of the Spirit, the development process work a little bit clearer. But hold that thought for just a moment. And let's talk about the timing, the, how long it takes for this fruit to mature again, the agricultural metaphor is appropriate here. Fruit doesn't appear on a tree fully ripened. It ripens over time as conditions to support its development. Conditions exist to support its development. That's the process that we observe in agriculture. So, just like any other fruit tree our spirit fruit tree will produce a bountiful harvest as environmental conditions exist to support its development and paul himself provides the example if it were otherwise if it were otherwise if it if it appeared full blown in the life of the believer upon acceptance of christ don't you think paul would have exhibited i mean after all he's the great evangelist He's the apostle to the Gentiles. He's the one who, who was called from persecuting the church to leading the church, to founding the church. Man, God doesn't do it in him. Oh, <laughs> why should he do it in me? But look at Paul's, in, in Romans 7, 18 through 20, Paul's great confession of his human condition doesn't sound like a person who has fully ripened Spirit fruit abounding in his life in each and every waking moment. Look what he says. I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For what I do is not the good I want to do. No, the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Paul has just confessed that goodness doesn't exist every day in his life. and He didn't display patience all that regularly either. Remember when he got in that dust-up with uh, with uh, Barnabas over whether John Mark should go with him on a missionary trip? Paul had no patience with John Mark. He didn't think he could hang. Wasn't reliable. This is the very same John Mark who penned the gospel that bears his name. So much for Paul's insight. Point is, Paul didn't demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit every day in every way throughout his life. It was a process that developed in his life over time. So we can't expect this full-blown fruit. And we shouldn't expect it. And every day when we look in the mirror and we read this passage in 22 23 and we say, that doesn't look like me. Yep, it doesn't. The fruit is still ripening. You eat it now and it's going to taste bad. Let it ripen. Let the Spirit work. Don't get in the Spirit's way. So that leads us to the purpose. And I suggest there are two primary reasons or purposes for the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer. One relates to this business of Transformation the transformation into the likeness of Christ. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul tells us, Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then, you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. When we understand that our mind is the place where the struggle between the sinful nature and the Holy Spirit is taking place, we can appreciate this call to be transformed through the renewing of our mind. As our mind is renewed and surrendered to the control of the Holy Spirit, the sinful nature's influence becomes weaker and weaker. As the whole of the sinful nature becomes weaker and weaker, the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit comes through louder and clearer, and we serve in power. Part of the transformation process. And the, trans, the renewing of your mind will come with prayer, with worship, with Bible study. All of those things that, that are important in, in the life of the Christian. It also comes day to day. We have an opportunity to renew our mind every single day, every single moment. It's not just what we do in our quiet time and on Sunday morning. In fact, we spend more time, or there is more time, I should say, to renew our mind apart from our quiet time than there is in our quiet time. Not to denigrate quiet time, but just a state of fact. And we'll see how the second major purpose of the fruit of the Spirit impacts that because the reason the Holy Spirit provides this fruit in our life is not to make us more spiritual. The goal is not spirituality, the goal is service. The fruit comes to the life of the believer not for the believer's benefit. The fruit doesn't manifest itself in my life for me. It manifests itself in my life for thee. That's why the Holy Spirit does that work. Not so I can feel good about my... Think about it, you know. Paul is just writing to the Galatians, right? And they were caught up in legalism. Going through these rituals, doing these things, following these laws. You see... It was all about them. They could they could look at all of the things that they were doing and they could, uh, by doing the works of the law, they could measure how far they had progressed. They knew who was further than somebody else, who had a ways to go, who was a better Christian than the next fellow. They could even create positions in their church commensurate with their Spiritual standing and status as they went along. And Paul told them at the very beginning of the book, that's not what it's about. In chapter 1 and verse 10 Paul says, am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Am I trying to please men? And here's the, here's, think of it this is one of these either or statements. If I were trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. You see, that's the end result of spirituality, isn't it? If the goal is spirituality, we're going to have to measure our spiritual growth and feel good about ourselves or work harder to to get further. It's all about me instead of being all about thee. Paul says, no, that's wrong. It's the bad perspective. That's not what this is all about. That leads to a life of self-centeredness, legalism, and achievement-oriented frustration." Our focus ought to be upon Christ and serving Christ. So that leads us back to now the fruit of the Spirit. And Paul, I think, tells us the key point is in verse 25. Look at verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. First of all, the believer lives by the Spirit. The word live means quickened, brought to life it's that spark of life in the believer and it's stated as a fact it's brought by the, it's as a result of the spirit because the spirit has given you life keep in step with the spirit and that phrase keep in step was a military term it was a military term that connoted that the picture Paul is painting in here is a Roman military unit marching off to battle and they're in perfect cadence. Everybody's left foot is hitting the ground at the same time in time with the cadence it's being called by the leader of that organization, that unit. And it was vitally important that they do that because if somebody was out of step, the, the unit wouldn't move as a whole. You'd trip the guy in front of you. You would create openings and gaps In the front, that would foul up your defenses. It would disrupt the offensive attacks. It would be a route step, ragtag outfit, and going into certain defeat. Keep in step with the Spirit, he says. So, what he's telling us is in the life of the believer, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, is the cadence caller. In a military formation, you got a platoon leader, a platoon sergeant out to the side calling cadence. Left, 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 right, left. For those of you who hadn't been in the military, you've been in a marching band in high school, the drum major or the bass drum hitting that big beat, and everybody's left foot hits the ground at the same time. That's the cadence. For the believer, it's the Holy Spirit who's calling the cadence. Just think what it would be like if everybody in this room if everybody in Grace Community Church, if everybody in the church universal marched through life with the cadence of the Holy Spirit ringing in their ear and that left foot hitting the ground in time with the cadence call. You see, that's what Paul's talking about. That's what he's doing here. And he's telling us That if we listen, if we pay attention to that cadence call, if we renew our mind by focusing our attention on the cadence call, that's how we cooperate with the Holy Spirit. Well, what is the cadence, you say? It's not one, two, three, four. The cadence is love. Agape love. Self-sacrificing love. A love that reaches the unlovely and the unlovable because He first loved us a love that's in response to God's love for us, not a love motivated by our own self-gratification. Joy, gladness of heart, a cheerfulness because of whose we are, not because of what we have or who we are. Peace, quiet rest in the confidence of God that sure knowledge that He is in control. He is sovereign, and even in the midst of difficulty that we know in our sufferings are nothing compared to the future glory that He has promised. The cadence is patience, long-suffering, and a willingness to forbear others' wrongs, hurts, and selfishness, forgiven because we have been forgiven. The cadence is kindness, seeking to ease others' burdens and helping those around us in need. Goodness, seeking the best in others, for others, and caring for them. Faithfulness, being one in whom others can trust and maintaining our faithfulness in Christ. The cadence is gentleness, humility, not thinking too highly of ourselves or taking ourselves too seriously. The cadence is self-control, exercising dominion over the urgings of the sinful nature as that battle wages within us. Now notice several things about this cadence, nine aspects of the cadence. Seven of them are absolutely, totally, and completely other-directed. They're outward manifestations. Joy and peace, arguably, are sort of inward things, but they really have an outward dimension, too. Think about what it's like to be around a person who's exhibiting joy and peace all the time. Wow, what an encouragement. So I think we could say that every one of them is other-directed. That's why I started out with the point that the fruit of the Spirit is given not for me, but for thee. The fruit of the Spirit is not something that benefits me. It's something given so that I can benefit others. So how do we do it? How does it develop? Well, these traits are active, not passive. They are actions, not concepts. They are concrete, not abstract. So, what about all of these times of development? Well, we, we have two things that happen to us day to day. We can respond to circumstances and situations out of the sinful nature, or we can respond by listening to the cadence call and keeping in step. When, uh, as Stuart Briscoe said, our part, our cooperation is this listening to the cadence call and getting in time with, uh, with the cadence. When faced with a brother or sister in need, for example, we can come alongside and extend kindness and goodness, or we can avoid them altogether and use our time and resources for our own good pleasure. We can respond out of the sinful nature, or we can respond to the Spirit's cadence. When faced with an angry or upset coworker who blames us for some problem at work, we can either extend patience and practice self-control, Or we can lash back and defend ourselves in order to protect our standing in the eyes of others. We can respond to the Spirit's cadence or we can respond out of the sinful nature. When faced with disappointment or heartbreak, we can claim God's joy and peace or we can grovel in our misery and self-pity. We can listen to the Spirit's cadence or we can respond out of the sinful nature. Every one of these situations, the Holy Spirit is calling us to respond to his cadence. Because of the power of the Spirit residing in the believer, we can keep in step, even though our natural self desires a different response. But as Paul told us, we are not slaves to the sinful nature any longer. Christ died to free us from that bondage. We don't have to listen to that natural response any longer. We are free to be led by the cadence of the Holy Spirit to allow Him to direct our steps. The Holy Spirit provides all we need to cooperate and participate. We need only to appropriate what the Spirit offers. When we do, growth occurs in our life. We become more mature. When we don't, growth is stunted. The bottom line we see, I think, is the fruit of the Spirit is God's work in us, transforming us into the likeness of Christ, not for our own benefit, but so that we can serve others. As we keep in step with the Spirit's cadence, Christ is glorified, God's love is revealed in this world, and others see Jesus in us. Not for my benefit, but for others. Not for me, but for thee. Let us pray.